Hello, everyone, and welcome to CBA's At The Bar, a podcast where young and youngish lawyers discuss with our guests legal news, events, topics, stories, and whatever else strikes our fancy. I'm your host, John Amarillo of Taft's Latinius and Hollister, and co-hosting the pod with me today is my friend, Trisha Rich, a partner at the venerable Holland and Knight. Hi, Trish. Hi, John. Thanks for having me. Trish, we have a truly fascinating discussion on the docket today, an interview with Amanda Knox's lead Italian defense attorney and media consultant and commentator. It is a behind-the-scenes look at a legal drama that gripped much of the world for several years. Would you be so kind as to introduce our guests? Absolutely. I'm really pleased to be here today and pleased to be able to introduce the two of these men who we met at a recent CBA trip in Rome. And we're very excited that they're joining us today on the podcast. So first, I'll start with Carlo Dalla Vadova who is a practicing lawyer in Rome. He practices in the area of corporate law, civil law, public and private international law, and criminal law. And he served as Ms. Knox's lead defense counsel in her case. And I found out today when I was researching his biography that he shares my birthday. So, um, (laughs) and secondly, we have Alex Gutierrez, who is a native New Yorker, actually, but came to college here in Chicago, the second city. We like to call it the first city. And obtained his JD from the University of Miami, was admitted to the Florida Bar in 1982, and then actually got a second law degree in Rome, was admitted to the Roman Bar in 1994, is currently a member of both the Florida Bar and the Italian Bar, lives in Rome and practices in the area of civil claims, family controversies, and commercial transactions, largely in the international space. So, Alex and Carlo, welcome. We're so glad to have you. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much for the invitation. It's a pleasure for me being part of this uh, conference. Thank you very much. Thank you. So, I don't think, Trish, our guests are going to need too much of a reminder about this case, but we should probably cover some of the very basics up front. I think our discussion today is going to have to assume a certain amount of background knowledge of the case by our listeners because we really want to get right into it. But here are some of the very basics just to frame the discussion. In 2007, a then 20 year old American exchange student, Amanda Knox, was accused of the brutal murder of a British roommate, Meredith Kirscher. Suspicion was quickly cast on Knox and her boyfriend, Rafael Solicito. I know. I'm mispronouncing that. I apologize, guys. Uh, Media all around the world was covering the story very, very closely and in the eyes of many unfairly. Following the conviction of known burglar Rudy Gede for the murder, Knox and Solicito were convicted of the murder as well. Italian police and the local prosecutor pursued a narrative that Knox, Solicito, and Gede had killed Kirscher in some kind of angry sexual orgy or game, often portraying Knox as the motivating and manipulative manipulating force behind the killing. Prosecutors also accused Knox and Solicito, among other things, of simulating a burglary to divert suspicion away from them. Knox was sentenced to 26 years imprisonment, Solicito to 25 years. Their conviction was subsequently overturned by an Italian appellate court after it was discovered that the handling of the crime scene and the DNA evidence, such as it was, by the police was completely bungled, and I think that's probably a kind way of putting it. Italy's Supreme Court of Cassation then set aside the acquittal and reinstated the conviction, only to later declare in a subsequent proceeding that Knox and Solicito were innocent of any involvement in the murder. Not just not guilty, but actually innocent. They cited, quote-unquote, glaring errors, investigative amnesia, and sensational failures in the investigation and the handling of the trial. So that's Again, a 20,000-foot look at the case, but it is so much more interesting than that. 
Trish, why don't you lead us off? I have so many questions. I know you do too. Sure. Well, I think what would be helpful, Carlo, is if you first told us how you came to represent Amanda. How did your attorney-client relationship with her form? Yes, thank you. And um, we started uh, just because we were contacted. Uh, we are listed in different uh, embassies here in Rome, working in the international field and also with the international organization of the United Nations. And so somebody from the U.S. Embassy gave our name and we were contacted the day one. So the day actually that Amanda was arrested. So there was the 6th of November, 2007. And what we normally do, because this happens uh, quite often, we coordinate, we manage being in Rome, especially when the case is outside of the Court of Appeal of Rome, we coordinate, we find a local lawyer, and then we monitor. And of course, we will uh, follow and uh, inform the embassies, which of course they have a duty to, to follow the eventual uh, criminal and trial of any citizen. And this applies for Great Britain, from Australia, from Ireland, for everybody. And, and that is our role, and we've been doing this for years. I'm, I'm a son of a father, so my father started a firm, and we have some quite extensive experience in this. In terms of criminal matters, we also handle uh, within the, the firm uh, specific cases uh, only. Uh, we're not purely a criminal lawyers. We're also criminal lawyers. But lately, in the last years, we are facing some, uh, many, many uh, involvement also because, in a way, the crime is becoming more and more international. And when talking about cartel or trafficking and immigration and, and also uh, uh, international situation. So that's why we, we got involved. The, the family called us. We got a lawyer in Perugia immediately the same day, uh, Luciano Girga, who was uh, assisting uh, Amanda uh, with me all the way to the end. So for eight years, the five grades. And we met Amanda on the day three. There was a confirmation of the arrest that's required. So there was a hearing in the prison. Amanda was, a, was arrested on the 6th, in the morning of the 6th of November. So, Carlo, if I may interrupt, I apologize. I'm, I think that's a great place for us to start. One of the things that struck me uh, when I was learning more about this case was how quickly the police focused on Amanda and her boyfriend. What explanation can you give for why they why they focus so intently and so early on the two of them? Well, uh, there's a way of saying when you have a, a very strong fact, you need to have a very strong reply. This murder in Perugia was uh, somehow uh, without a reason, and so all the authority, the police, the prosecutor, even the university, because Perugia is known to be uh, famous uh, for the University of Foreigners, they all took this uh, matter seriously. So uh, they had to show uh, that something was going on, that the murder happened actually in the town. The villetta, the house, was just outside the wall and a few hundred meters from the university. And uh, it happened in the room of the poor victim, Meredith Kercher. So not only in the house, but in the room, which is known to be one of the safest places of all of us. So, And so the police immediately took a strong action. There was numbers of uh, police officers appointed, supervised by a prosecutor. And Amanda was put immediately under uh, examination because she was interrogated the day that uh, they found the body. So this was the 2nd of November, the 3rd, the 4th, the 5th. And then during a famous night between the 5th and the 6th, they arrested her. And the reason why Amanda is there, because uh, she was the 
living with the melody and they were uh, together and the house was occupied by four girls but the other two girls were away that night and so i think the the police uh, now that uh, we know what was the final result they actually made a mistake but they put mm-hmm. a lot of energy uh, and they wanted to reply and to give immediately some kind of a name or some kind of solution of this possible murder and uh, they were too fast so today we can say that they made a mistake they should have probably taken more time and wait to make more evidence collect more elements because uh, the idea uh, of the participation of the murder with uh, Amanda Raffaele Rudy Gede and the poor victim which uh, the main idea was uh, was a sex game that went wrong uh, it little by little it collapsed because there was no element supporting this hypothesis and the prosecutor in fact mm-hmm. they changed the motive during the the trial but um, the reason i think all this gave um, was that they they closed the case too fast they after the morning of the 6th, there was a, was a press release around 3 o'clock in the afternoon announcing that the case is closed, that the American girl confessed, because uh, at that time there was uh, this word confession of Amanda, then was not used anymore. It was a false confession, so I'm, I'm sure you're aware what, what a false confession mm-hmm. is. And the press release was uh, held by the head of the police, the head of prosecutor office, the rector of the university, the mayor of Perugia, Perugia is a small town, so of course this uh, gave uh, a lot of responsibility to the authority. And that's why the case also became so so noisy, because immediately all the media, uh, they found out that there was a version, and uh, so we had a great attention also from the media from day one. So just sort of to summarize, Meredith's body was discovered on November 2nd, Amanda gets arrested four days later. You meet her, you know, is it two days after that for the first time when she's going into this initial hearing? And then in the meantime, the police issued a press release declaring that the case had been solved. Is that generally sort of the opening sequence of events? Yes, yes. The press release is still on on the social and one of the video. And it's actually correct, yes. There was a need of giving a reply. Yeah? Right. It was such a strong fact. They were and, under intense uh, political often, and press pressure. They were very much under pressure, and they simply made a mistake. This happens. So uh, this is a question for um, both of you guys. There was strong pressure, or strong evidence, I should say, from my understanding of the case that emerged, that uh, Rudy Gede was actually the sole perpetrator of this murder. Is that correct? If that's correct, what evidence was there? Yes, the main point of our defense that we brought uh, over and over again, and we also had at the, the beginning a limited access to the document, was that there was no evidence of Amanda being in the room. Mm-hmm. The girl was found on the floor with blood, with two wounds on the on the neck, and uh, many many blood traces on the on the handle of the door, on the on the wall, on the bed. There was no evidence of Amanda, and the same applied for Raffaele. Where Rudy Gede had a footprint with a Nike shoe, there was a, a circle underneath, on the, on the blood just beside. There was a DNA that was found on the hand of the victim that was related to, to Rudy Gede. There was his DNA on the bra 
the brow was cut with mm-hmm. uh, think a knife, mm-hmm. and there was two handprint, two handprint of blood on the pillow that with the fingerprint was uh, analyzed within 10 days from the, the finding. And everybody thought that that was something related to Amanda Raffaele and uh, Patrick Lumumba because at the first stage, Patrick Lumumba was involved. But in fact, right. the result of the fingerprint were Rudy Gede. All the immigrants in Italy, they have to deposit their fingerprint. So there's a database. And also there was DNA in the body because according to Rudy Gede, the, the version that he gave is that he had an affair with Meredith and they had a meeting that night and they actually had a preliminary intimate relation using the hand. And then they stopped because Meredith didn't want to go ahead and why he had to go to the toilet, why he was in the toilet, somebody else came in and killed Meredith. So this is Rudy Gede's version. The first mm-hmm. part is probably true. The second part is false. So the first part, I'm curious, Carlos, so the first part that they were having sexual relations that at least at the beginning were consensual, I find that very curious because my understanding of Gade's involvement was that stemmed from the fact that he was a known burglar and that the window to Meredith's bedroom was broken. There was a dispute about whether it was broken from the inside or outside, but it seemed to add up that this may have been some kind of breaking and entering or started out as a, a burglary crime. How does that square with the finding of his DNA? May I add something about, may I add Please. something about the known burglar? Not only was he a known burglar, but he has a history for breaking windows and breaking an entry, mm-hmm. which was comparable to what had happened that day when the police came on the scene. And Carlos, you know more about this than me, but correct me if I'm wrong, but when the police came on the scene, they found a broken window in one of the roommate's bedrooms. And ultimately, one of the big issues was, was the break-in feigned? Was it made to look like a break-in? Or was right. there a true break-in? So if the defense's theory, as I understand it, was that the encounter between Gaudet and Meredith began as something consensual, how does that square with the evidence of a break-in? I just don't understand the relationship. No, I, I, don't, I, don't, I never believed in this version that Rudy Gaudet brought. First of all, all the friends of Meredith, the uh, British girls, they, none of them confirmed that there was an affair. They were out the day before, which was okay. Halloween. Meredith had a, had a relation with the boyfriend that was living on the ground floor. The, the, the villa, the small villa was divided into ground floor with four boys. And the first floor was occupied by the four girls. So the four boys that weekend, they were out because it was a long weekend. And they all went back home. They were from the Adriatic. It was a holiday. Uh, was a holiday, long holiday. So uh, it's the, the Rudy Gedele that is trying to say that, and uh, nobody really believes. I, I think Rudy Gede had an attack. He tried to, uh, without consent from the beginning, also because uh, on the face of Meredith, which was found on the floor, there's a sign of a hand very strong that was trying to keep the face and the mouth shut. Mm-hmm. And probably with the other hand, Rudy Gede was trying to take advantage. The girl was fine, almost naked. So there were some pants, some jeans just beside the underwear and the bra that was caught. So he was probably using a knife. Uh, he, he was arrested before, as, as uh, Alex said, he had some precedent of breaking into a law firm, taking the computer and also in a school in Milan. 
he took all the equipment and when they when the he was stopped in Milan in fact and they found that he was always carrying one of those small knife uh, with about six centimeter okay. blade which is compatible with the wound uh, the knife was never found but uh, uh, what is my personal opinion that he went there to rob also because he knew that the house was empty everybody was out and while he was there and he got in by breaking into the window he uh, Rudy Gede was a basketball player so a very athletic and the house is a, one of those stone houses it's easy to get on the first floor and and while he was there a uh, Meredith catcher probably walked in then what happened there will be a mystery nobody will know but uh, my impression that he attacked Meredith just because he was alone with the girl in in a house. So one of the things you just mentioned was that the knife that uh, was used to kill Meredith was never found. But the prosecutors believed that that knife was in the house, right? They thought that was in the boyfriend's house, Solicito's house. Right. So they thought that they had it. Can you talk to us a little bit about the murder weapon? Yes, uh, of course, the murder weapon, from an evidence point of view, it's, it's a fundamental L, uh, point of, of the accusation. So the, the sixth, the, the day that uh, they were arrested, there was a search in Solicito's uh, house. Uh, Raffaele uh, lived uh, something like 300 meters from the villa on Via della Pergola, and that's where they stayed the night. Amanda was staying with Raffaele that night. So they went into the kitchen and they picked up one of the knives that was in the kitchen. This was a 17-centimeter knife, kitchen knife, with a blade of 11 centimeter, and that was used by the uh, prosecutor as the um, murder knife, a supposed murder knife. Carlo, what struck me about that is that the police didn't test any other knives that were found in any of the kitchens, right? There was an investigator, no. if I remember correctly, that just said something like, he selected this knife as evidence because of his investigative intuition, something like that. Is that right? Correct. Correct. That was the version because we asked there was another six knife in that kitchen. And but uh, and then it was analyzed with DNA and they found the DNA, pretty good uh, trace of Amanda on the handle. Mm-hmm. But she were always said from, from day one that they, would, they, they, they cook like, the, day, the night before. They cooked fish and they got to cut the fish and she did that. Then they, they mm-hmm. found a low copy number of uh, biological material that can also be referred to medical capture on the blade. So that was the main evidence to say that uh, that was the murder uh, weapon. But the murder weapon immediately lost uh, importance because it was illogical, total, the reconstruction. So the idea was that that night, Amanda was going around and decided to pick up a knife of that uh, size uh, with no reason. I mean, Perugia is a very safe place, and she never went around with a knife. And then they went into the house. They had this sex uh, orgy game that went wrong, but also was also satanic for a while. Somebody said that it was a satanic game. That was never proved. There was no need. The two boys, Rudy Gede and Raffaele, they didn't know each other. So how can you do a game like that with somebody that you don't know? And then what you kill somebody, you use it to, to, do, to commit a crime, and uh, and then, of course, you wash it because the knife, and we discovered that only in the appeal, so something like two years and a half later, was also checked for blood. The DNA is also blood, but for blood, you have a special test, which is called the tetrametabelzidina. Sounds better in Italian than English, I'm sure. <laughs> I think it's very similar in, in English, tetrametabelzidina, yeah. something. It was checked for the blood, and it was all negative. So how is it possible that 
they clean the knife so well. And then what? You bring back the knife and you put it back in the kitchen. So the next morning you use it for breakfast. Was total right. illogic reconstruction. No murder. The, the murder weapon is normally destroyed. It's the first thing that uh, a responsible will get rid of it. So that was already illogical. May I say something about one point that he raised? He said this came up on appeal, and you wonder how did it come up on appeal? Because under the United States system, nothing can come up on appeal. You have to just discuss any potential errors of law. The reason that is, is because under the Italian criminal justice system, on appeal, you can introduce new evidence. If the judge is not satisfied with the evidence that is gathered at the trial level, he can reopen the case and conduct a new trial. And I think that's important to underscore. I think that's an important distinction here, is Alex, and thank you for doing it. But that... That reminds me of an interesting point that connects both yours and the knife, which is that when, as I understand it, rather, when the appellate court ordered retesting of the knife, they found mm -hmm. that Meredith's DNA was not actually on it and that it was more likely DNA that the initial lab um, had said was positive on the knife was the result of contamination either at the lab or the crime scene. Right. The DNA was unreliable. The DNA by a certain Kilty, which was appointed and with her, who was appointed by the judge on appeal to conduct an independent evaluation. Because, Carlo, correct me if I'm wrong, one of the big issues on trial at the Court of Assize at the trial level was the fact that they denied your request to conduct an independent evaluation. Is that correct? Absolutely. This, uh, we asked at the first grade to analyze this 548 DNA sample that they have checked by an independent, and our request was refused because the scientific police lab... Keep in was mind that they... Right, to keep it, that's right. Keep in mind that the DNA evidence that was utilized at the trial level was the DNA evidence gathered by an expert of the police in a police laboratory. Correct, Carla? Yes, yes, yes. So Meredith's DNA was all over the lab and it wasn't isolated. That's the point, right? It could have wandered. Correct. It could right. have found its way to the knife at the actual lab. Correct. Correct. The acquitted decision, they talk about lack of respect of international protocol. We have a European institute that tells you how you have to collect the items and how you have to be dressed when you do DNA and how you keep the item into custody, how you also analyze on a table with nothing else on the table. So they're talking about lack of respect of the protocol. And also this definition of the sample of related to Meredith was a low copy number, which again right. was a minimum quantity of biological material, which was not identified, that they use it. And it was referred to Meredith, but another four million other people. And we discovered that in appeal. So in appeal, we had an independent expert team of two professors from the University of Rome that they've explained that is not 
right to say that that was referred to medication, and also that was not repeated. All the uh, DNA uh, samples, they have to be duplicate, to be certain. So you take right. the material, you divide the material, you use the first part for the first exam, then you use the second part for the second part. This was not done with the blade because the material was so small. We were talking about eight milligrams of material that the police decided to use it all together because otherwise they would not even put, uh, was not possible to make the test. So they did not duplicate. This, according to international standard, also U.S., you have the same, you have a manual about this, is not a test that can be used in the judicial uh, courts. So. I just wanted to add one thing about that. Regarding the way the evidence was gathered, and I followed it very carefully, there were a plethora of errors, errors that we would consider outrageous in terms of preserving the chain of custody, for example. I saw pictures of investigators, see crime scene investigators that would go into the house then go outside into the yard, into the terrace, smoke cigarettes, go back inside. Right. So they, they were tracking DNA all over the house. Yeah, they were tracking the, the knife that we talked about earlier. Uh, they took it out of the kitchen uh, drawer and put it in a simple box and preserved it, you know, just on the in the drawer of the police officer who gathered it. The bra class was found 45 days after the initial investigations uh, in the midst of rubbish and dirt that had gathered in 45 days. Just to remind our listeners, Alex, I'm sorry for interrupting, but that was the bra clasp that was found that belonged to Meredith and had Solicito's DNA on it, correct? Good days. Good days. Purportedly. Oh, but I think purportedly. it had both, right? Purportedly. But you're saying that yeah, it had been purportedly. moved around the house for weeks before that. Exactly. And, and I mean, Solicito, was, it was customary for him to go visit in those days. Therefore, it's, it's not unusual that after 45 days and being strung, you know, strewn in the, in the corner with a lot of garbage that it would have been contaminated. But I, I don't want to belabor the point. I could tell you, I could go, and I'm sure Carlo can too, go into a list of errors regarding, you know, preserving sure. the evidence and the chain of custody. So there was the knife in the prosecution's theory that this was a crazy sex game that had gone badly that ended in Meredith's murder. Other than that, can you very briefly summarize the remaining evidence against Ms. Knox? Carlo, tell him about the cartoon in support of the sex game. Yes, well, uh, this was uh, a tentative. Uh, at the final argument of the prosecutor first grade uh, that uh, took two days, there were two prosecutors uh, one was mainly due to the scientific elements. At the end, they announced that they were going to show uh, about a 20-minute uh, video that was made with the cartoons about the possible construction of the fact. And, of course, we opposed because we never had this before in Italy. I mean, normally the final arguments is all verbal. You can either use some slides, but you never make a video. So the video was, in fact, uh, authorized with closed door so no media, and it was a terrible video. A terrible video because uh, it was done with uh, some cartoons and one of those um, computer uh, reconstructions, so it was not clear at all mm -hmm. what was going on. Yeah. And all this uh, then ended also in a, in, a, in a cost investigation because the video cost 170,000 euros. 
So, but and that was never used again, and uh, was the video was destroyed after by the court. And I think it was actually it was like a boomerang for the prosecutor. I think yeah. they also went into a media involvement, and they got, uh, let's say, you know, looking for visibility also. So, which happened in this case? Everybody, everybody looked. Right. There's certainly a, a feeding frenzy. Yeah. But other evidence, there were many evidence, just to let you know that uh, we, they, the prosecutor brought 93 witnesses. So they had the footprint, mm-hmm. fingerprint, mixed blood, witness, the cell. They checked all the mobile of all the protagonists to see where they were, so the company. But well, just to give you an idea, they, they, they used, for example, a mixed blood and DNA of Amanda Knox and uh, Meredith Ketchers as one of the main evidence against us. And mm-hmm. this was a, a sample that was taken in the bathroom mm-hmm. and in the bidet. I know, I'm sure you are familiar with the bidet, and in the sink of the bidet. So the police scientific, mm-hmm. they went into the sink, they scratched, and they took some biological material from Meredith Kircher and blood from Amanda. Of course, they were using that bidet. They were sharing the bathroom, the two girls. They were have their monthly uh, period, of course. And the DNA has one defect. It's a great opportunity for all of us working in the justice system to, to identify a person in, in a place, but it cannot tell you when. Right. It cannot be dated. Right. So if I use my bathroom and then my wife goes back in a week time, of course you have a mixed biological right. material or myself or my... Uh, that was uh, a trick that was used in many other. They put fingerprint and footprint of Amanda here and there, but in her room. Of course, right. she was living in the house, and that, that made a lot of confusion. And we had to uh, analyze and, and destroy each single element one by one. And I have a, a million questions about the individual pieces of evidence, uh, which we will get back to right after we take this quick break. This episode of At The Bar brought to you by One Legal. America's top-rated court filing solution. One Legal's simple workflows and local support make it easy to file in large and complex courts like Cook, Marion, and L.A. counties. Chicago bar members get up to 15% off. Learn more at onelegal.com backslash CBA. And we're back. Carlo, Alex, I know, again, like I said before the break, I have a a million questions about the evidence itself. One of them that really sticks out to people is the presence of the fecal matter in the toilet, which, as I understand it, tested positive for an identification with G'day. What explanation is there from either side as to why that fecal matter would be in the, the bathroom after a crime like this? It just seems so out of place. Well, it's Uri Gidei that gave the explanation. He mentioned that uh, he had, was starting to have a, an intimate relation and then uh, Meredith stopped for some reason and uh, he had to go to the bathroom because he just had a kebab before, so he had to go to the bathroom. And while he was in the bathroom and he listened to his uh, iPhone with some music, about three songs, so about 15 minutes, and uh, he heard somebody coming in the house and some screaming, yelling, and then a huge scream. So he walked uh, immediately out the bathroom, even with the pants down, 
and he didn't flush the toilet. So that's the simple mm. answer. And then he's, tell, he's telling the story that he saw a man walking out with a knife in his hand uh, with mm-hmm. a hat that after a year and a half, he started to say that maybe it was Rafael de Solecito, but it was a bit too late and his, his mm-hmm. version. Uh, Rudy Gaudet has been defined by the different uh, courts, also by the Supreme Court final decision, as a professional liar. Okay. He told many lies. He has criminal records. So uh, he's, he's pretty good in, in fabricating. But of course, the, 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 the immediately when they searched the house, and we were talking of the second bathroom, so not the bathroom nearby the two girls. There were, there were four girls. There was Laura and Filomena, the two Italian girls on one side of the house sharing one bathroom, and then Amanda and Meredith sharing the other bathroom. So this was the second so, bathroom. I was just going to say, speaking of the, the roommates, that brings something to mind, which is that the roommates testified against Amanda and Solicito that, if I remember correctly, that Amanda had told them that she had actually found the victim's body in the closet and that it was already covered with a quilt, whereas Amanda told the police that the door was locked and she couldn't get in. Can you talk about that a little bit, the inconsistency? Yeah, now this is it's very technical. It's also a small detail. Amanda and Rafaela, they made a phone call when they realized that they were at the house, Amanda went to, took a, to take a shower and she found the, the, some weird situation. One was the door of Meredith closed in her room that she never closed before. And uh, mm. she thought that Meredith was sleeping, so she went away. Then she went back to Solicito house and both together went back and they saw the window broken, saw the toilet not flashed, so they got story and they called the police. So in that phone, uh, which is recorded by Solici. So Solici was doing the, the speaking. He's saying, we have a house with the window broken. Uh, the roommate, uh, Meredith, is not here. We tried to call her on the phone several times. She doesn't reply. That the room is closed. We don't know what happened. And the same happened because Amanda called Filomena. Filomena was sleeping with the boyfriend on the other side of Perugia. So Filomena came on the site. The police also came. And together, they pulled down the door. And while they pulled down the door of the room, the victim was on the floor, there was a, uh, also a wardrobe open, and so the story and what you're referring is that when Amanda, after, during the, the, the afternoon, that afternoon, the body was found around one o'clock, she was mm-hmm. trying to explain to Laura and Filomena what, what she, she, she said, when, when the door went down, we saw a foot, and the police immediately mm-hmm. said, everybody out. And she also saw the, the wardrobe, but she never said that the, the body was in the wardrobe. So there was a miscommunication. But it's not really important because at the end, um, there, was, there was police there. So what happened that morning was assessed. Of course, uh, everybody was so shocked. And uh, Amanda was crying in the afternoon. Amanda was alone with no family, with no friends. She had to go and stay with Solecito. So Rafaela was the only person that she knew. So she actually moved. She didn't have any dresses. And uh, she was on the phone with the mother and the father all the time. And uh, she was very, very shocked. At the same time, she wanted to collaborate with the police. So she, she was actually questioned for 54 hours in four days. 54 hours altogether. The second, the third, the fourth, and then the famous night on the fifth and the sixth from 10 o'clock until 5.30 in the morning. Then at 8 o'clock, she was arrested. All this happened right. without a lawyer, without even... Uh, really understanding because uh, her uh, Italian at that time was not very good and there was no right. translator. 
So one thing I want to jump ahead a little bit to that I think will be of interest to our audience, and Alex, I'm going to direct this question at you. It seems that the Italian media played a huge role in this case that's unlike the role that media plays in criminal cases as they unfold in the United States. Can you talk a little bit about that aspect of this case? Well, Carlos could tell you also about it. Uh, He was directly involved in the old adage, sex sells. You know, you have an attractive American student, a heinous crime, blood, a small provincial town, that does not have a history of violence, and the public clamor internationally that this brought, it was a media frenzy, something that I would compare to the O.J. Simpson trial, basically. Alex, the media had access to the jury during the trial, isn't that right? Right. Now, wait a minute. There is no such thing as a jury trial in Italy. What you have are lay jurors and professional jurors standing side by side in the same trial. Carlos, would you like to elaborate on how the court of seas works? First of all, uh, we don't have by standard a jury like like in America for the jury trial. We have normally have a single, or in court therapy we have three judges, and in Supreme Court we have five professional judges. For some specific crime, like murder, we have the court of assises, which is composed by eight people altogether. Two professional judges, the president and the vice president, and six lay people that are chosen almost like in the state, so with no criminal records, with a certain age, some experience, and they have to be resident in the court of appeal. Now... Mm. The role of the, of the lay people is very limited here in Italy. So they listen, they're like a guarantor. But the, the trial, all the activity during the, the hearings are directed by the, the president. Uh, the vice president takes notes. He also makes normally the question and he also writes the final decision, the motivation. Mm. The decision then is taken by majority in the chamber at the end and they have the same vote. And the, the rule that applies is the most favorable decision applies to the suspect. So if there's four in favor of guilty and four in favor of acquittal, the acquittal will supersede and will win. So it, it's totally different role from what happened in, in America. But we did have uh, the eight judges, the court of Assise at the first grade and the appeal grade. And also when we went back to, to Florence, because we had a first passage at the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court said, do it again, uh, because we had an acquittal of 26 years, first grade. Then, sorry, the conviction of 26 years, first grade. Then we appealed, and uh, we got a decision for acquittal, and Amanda Raffaele were released. This happened four years after. And the acquittal was appealed. And the acquittal was appealed. Yeah, let's talk about that. So I was confused by the course of the case procedurally. You know, generally here you have a trial, you have an appeal. Maybe after the appeal, uh, if you don't like the decision, you have one more discretionary appeal to our state or federal Supreme Court. And that's the end of the case for the most part. But here, Amanda um, and you, Carlo, went before the Italian Supreme Court or the Italian Court of Cassation, I should say, twice. Isn't that right? Yes. Well, uh, the need to make a clarification. Before in Italy you can consider a decision final, you have three grades. So first okay. grade, court of appeal, or the Cassation, or the Supreme Court, whatever. And it's for us, it's normal. So you go there for mm. tax issue, for civil issue, criminal issue, 
administrative issue is the same. You have three grades. It's in the Constitution. The Constitution mm-hmm. gives the right of a suspect to have three grades because it's provided by, let's say, the legislator that judges can make mistakes. And this right is given to everybody, so to the suspect in criminal matter, but also to the state. So the prosecutor has a right to appeal an acquittal if he thinks that there's a mistake. And this is mm-hmm. what happened after the second grade. The prosecutor uh, appealed to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court canceled the decision of acquittal, sent mm-hmm. back the case, because this is what normally do. The Supreme Court delimited the you cannot bring witness and uh, you cannot bring documents and there's normally one hearing. And so the Supreme Court sent back the case again to the merit. We say merit level and we had to go to Florence. So we had to change the Court of Appeal because Perugia had only one section of uh, court for, with the jury. And of course, you cannot back to the same jury. We had to go to another Court of Appeal. So we went to Florence. And at that point, we got a second conviction. This time was 28 years in prison for participation in the murder. And since that decision was still a decision of a second grade, there was still a possibility, of course, for us to appeal, to go again at the third grade, which we did. So at that time, we went back to the Supreme Court. And at that point, the Supreme Court, after listening carefully, we had defense paper and so on, uh, decided to cancel the second conviction of 28 years and not to send back the case, but to decide the case, which is something very rare. By statistic, the Supreme Court very rarely decide a case, something like 10% of the cases that get decided. But in this case, because we really, there was a total fulfilling of all the review, examination, witness, and so on, the Supreme Court decided to put an end of this story, and they have declared a final acquittal. If I may add to that, we call the final level of jurisdiction the Supreme Court or the Supreme Court of Cassation. Cassation comes from the verb in Italian, cassare, which in English means to vacate. To confirm what what Carlos said, normally the Supreme Court either confirms or vacates and remands back to the lower level court. The first time when they appeal the acquittal and the Supreme Court vacated the acquittal, it remanded back to the Court of Appeal because the Court of Appeal of Perugia has only, as Carlos said, one section and the rules provide that when a case is vacated and remanded, it cannot go back to the same section. It was then sent to Florence. Florence then convicted. So Carlo and his team appeal the conviction. This time, this time, and it was amazing because actually I have to tell you, it took me really by surprise because it was an extremely rare event. Keep in mind, you went back to the same cassation court, a different section, but the same cassation court that had already overturned the acquittal. And what did they do? They vacate the conviction, the second conviction, and they don't remand. The reason they don't remand, Carlo, correct me if I'm wrong, is because they felt 
that the evidence used to convict was irremediably tainted, and therefore any other trial of the matter would not have been reliable. Yeah, correct. Yeah, absolutely. That explains how they could remand without a retrial, I was wondering. And, and, and I want to also add a comment, uh, which uh, I think is important. We are, we are all lawyers, and uh, is the matter of jurisdiction. Uh, there's been a lot of attention from the United States, a lot of attention from uh, UK, a lot of attention also from other observers here in Europe, France, and a lot of experts, they start to make comments. Uh, but this is not correct. This is illegal. This is different. In my place, we have the double jeopardy. So, especially America uh, actually made, there was a movement uh, pro Amanda with also some political involvement. Some senators, they took position. Also, your present uh, president was involved. He, he was uh, following the case. Yeah. He contacted us. We, we, we don't and, like talking uh, about him on this podcast. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, no, we don't. Let's not. Let's just let's not go there. That's another hour. Yeah, I think that they're actually now fighting Mr. Trump and Ms. Ms. Knox. I think yeah. they're now they're now at odds again. So no, yeah. but uh, just to tell you how media can influence a trial. A trial, I think, is a very important moment. We have a procedure. We just keep quiet and wait for the decision. Well, there was outside trial. Uh, there was a lot of people looking into this case. And one of the mistakes that a lot of people made was the lack of respect of the jurisdiction. Mm-hmm. So now we know exactly what, what jurisdiction means. So if you have a case in China, if you have a case in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, you have to respect that law, that court, even if it's different or even if you don't agree. Mm-hmm. And this was not done. And this has caused us as a defense lawyer enormous problem because everybody was upset. The judge they didn't like to receive letters. There was somebody who also asked to change jurisdiction from Perugia to, to go somewhere else. They wrote to the Italian president. There was the Minister of Foreign Affairs. So, and all this actually went out of any control. And I think was a big mistake by all the people that they did it. Because, again, we work internationally. We have cases around the world. And we know how important it is to respect the local laws and also the local jurisdiction, the procedure, and the magistrate. Of course, in right. this case, uh, we can we can summarize that there was a big mistake. Uh, the girl was in four years in prison for this, uh, and she will never forget this experience. But still, uh, the magistrate, they did their own job. They tried to find the response of this murder, despite the mistake. And I think that uh, this respect uh, should have been given more also from outside of Italy. Yeah, rule of law is something. something. Please, Alex. Without making any comparison of which system is better, because each system is the product of a different cultural and historical evolution of the society in which it evolves, um, there are drastic differences uh, in the two systems. There is no question that much of the system in the United in, in Italy is uh, aims to give maximum guarantee to a defendant. Um, however, sometimes things go awry. Uh, this, in my view, was one of those cases where things go awry. 
I know we only had a chance to barely scratch the surface today. In fact, I think we have to cut our Stranger Than Legal Fiction segment because we've been having such a compelling conversation. I didn't want to cut it off. So I think that's going to be our show for today, unfortunately. Again, you know, I have so many more questions, but this has been a fascinating discussion. I want to thank our guests, Carlo Dalla Vidova and Alex Guterres, for joining us today in what has, again, been a truly fascinating discussion, behind-the-scenes look at one of the great legal dramas of our time. I also want to thank everyone here at the CBA who makes this machine run, including my co-host today, Trish Risch, our executive producer, Jen Byrne, and our sound crew, Ricardo Islas and Steve Weirich. Remember, you can follow us and send us comments, questions, episode ideas, or just troll us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at CBA at the bar, all one word. Please also rate us and leave us your feedback on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, wherever you download your podcast. It helps us get the word out. Until next time, for everyone here at the CBA, thank you for joining us, and we'll see you soon at the bar.